Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kent Hill, for speaking with us on uh, Providence. And thank you also for the uh, article that you wrote in our print edition, Will Christianity Survive in the Middle East? A Christian Perspective. And also thank you for speaking at the Diane Nippers lecture last fall on this same topic. So my first question is how did you decide that you would talk about you know, Middle East Christians and whether or not Christianity would survive in the Middle East for the Diane Nippers lecture? I think the main reason was that in my present position as the executive director of the Religious Freedom Institute, my main focus, one of my main foci, is to set up the Middle East Action Team, which is designed very explicitly to help Christians remain in the Middle East and other minorities as well. So I had been thinking intensely about this. I had been researching this. I had been writing an article which is going to appear in a volume that the Under Caesar's Sword Project, uh, which is a project of Notre Dame and the Religious Freedom Institute, is going to have published in uh, probably later this year on global Christian persecution. I'd written a major article on Iraq and Syria. So I knew that what I was most up on top of uh, at the present time was this issue of the fate of Christians in the Middle East, and I, I thought I would share that with the IRD audience. And it was a really great lecture, and thank you so much for sharing that with us. For most of our listeners, I believe they would already understand some parts about what is happening to Christians in the Middle East and also other religious minorities there. But would you like to kind of give a review of some of the different things that have been going on there over the past 10 years or so? Sure. No, I'd be glad to do that. Um, one of the things I found interesting in uh, looking at the history of Christians in the Middle East, of course, is to, uh, first of all, note something that a lot of people don't seem to realize. Uh, they don't seem to realize that from the uh, day of Pentecost, there were Christians in the Middle East. There were Christians from Iraq and what is now Syria and Turkey at the day of Pentecost, and they were in Jerusalem, and they went back home. So if really from the first and second century, you've got Christians uh, throughout the Middle East and in the parts of the Middle East where they were in particular pressure today. That's the first thing I would say. So they've been there, and they've been there a long time. Uh, masses, Orthodox uh, masses in, in this part of the world often are in a language that is very similar, Aramaic, very similar to the language that Jesus spoke. So this is about as close as you can get to the uh, primitive church as you can imagine. Now, this isn't the first time that Christians in the Middle East have struggled. Even before uh, the birth of Islam, there were, you know, raiders coming to the Middle East, and from time to time their fate seemed very much up in the air. But it's also important to note that from the 7th century on, once the uh, Muslims had taken over northern Africa and much of the Middle East, for much of that time they were able to live relatively peacefully with Muslims. There was not an attempt to exterminate them. They were, in fact, second-class citizens, but there was not an attempt to exterminate them. There was nothing like genocide during much of that time. What we've seen happen in the last 100 years, however, is really quite frightening. It's just not the last 15 years since the overthrow of Saddam Hussein in Iraq or the beginning of the civil war and the rise of the Islamic State in that area. Uh, even before that, even in the last century, Christians were migrating out to the Middle East, sometimes for economic reasons, often because of ethnic intolerance. Turkey 
at the beginning of the 20th century, the Ottoman Empire was particularly inhospitable. There's just a fraction left of the number and percentage of Christians in Turkey that there was 100, 125 years ago. So there's been a decline for some time. But there's a couple things to keep in mind. Number one, there is a large percentage of Christians in Lebanon, maybe someplace between 35 and 38 percent, something like that. That's the largest percentage of Christians in any Middle Eastern country, and uh, they're going to say the largest number of Christians in any countries is in Egypt, where there may be as many as 8 to 10 percent of the population are mainly Coptic Christians, but they are under pressure right now as well. And then the final point I'll simply make here is the big rise in persecution and immigration. We're talking about 80 to 85 percent, 75 to 90 percent, something like that of the Christians in Iraq and Syria have left or are displaced within their own countries. And there are two reasons for this. One is the civil war, which began in 2011 in Syria, and one is the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, which created kind of sectarian chaos. And that kind of anarchy is always bad for minorities, and it's been terrible for Christians. You mentioned, you know, the Christianity and how it is ancient in the Middle East, and that is something that many people in the West kind of forget about. And also that, you know, the Middle East is not a massive sea of Muslim Arabs, that there is a lot of diversity. And that's something that I've, um, since working at Providence, have kind of come across many, many times. You kind of mentioned some of the different sects. Do you want to kind of explain a little bit about the different types of Christians and different types of uh, yeah. Christianity? There are indeed a, a number of different Christian groups uh, in the Middle East. Uh, Chaldean Catholics is a very uh, a large group in a place like Iraq, but there are Syrian and Iraqi Orthodox. There are some evangelicals. That would be a, a much smaller group. In Egypt, of course, the big group has always been the Coptic Orthodox Christians. But you can find uh, books on, for example, Christianity in Iraq. We'll talk about eight or ten different groups, some of them that go back literally hundreds, even millennia, others uh, which are more recent if they are evangelical churches. But most of the Christians are Orthodox or Catholic in the Middle East context. And in your article, you talk about how Islam and the world needs a Christian presence in the Middle East. Would you like to explain, you know, why should Christians remain there? Why shouldn't we just evacuate and fly them all out into countries that are more stable and more hospitable? To you know, this is a tremendously important point. The reason to keep Christians in the Middle East goes way beyond just concern for the suffering and the persecution of Christians. I mean, you can put them all on jumbo jets and take them to Detroit or San Francisco or the East Coast, and you could save the Christians if that was your, your only goal. But the absence of Christians in the Middle East and the absence of other minorities in the Middle East would be disastrous for the region and for the world. And let me explain why. I'm an historian by training, and one of the things you know when you look at the history of different countries and regions is that any time there is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, diverse, pluralistic environment, there is much less danger to neighbors. Uh, to put it differently, if there is just one kind of people, ethnic group, religious group, political group allowed, 
that kind of entity is invariably hostile, not only to its own citizens who differ, but to neighbors. So if you're interested in global or U.S. national security or regional security, one of the ways you can most enhance it is to support pluralism, to support religious freedom. So one of the selfish reasons the United States and the West ought to uh, work to make sure that Christians and other minorities stay is because if they do stay, the whole region is going to be less problematic for its neighbors. Now, there's a bill that's passed the House and is being considered by the Senate right now, which has to do with aiding, concretely aiding Christians who have been victims of genocide. We're hoping and praying that this will make its way through the Senate and be passed. Uh, but that's very important. But again, the point is not just to protect the Christians. It is to ensure that the region supports religious freedom and pluralism because that's in our best interest as well. And that would include all religions, I would imagine. It would include all minorities. And you want a situation in which Islam is tolerant of its own differences within it. I mean, the differences between Sunnah and Shia uh, and other minority groups within Islam, it's important for those uh, that diversity to be respected. And one of the big questions that really is in front of us all as we think of the future of the region and the future of Islamic extremism, whether it's in South and Southeast Asia or in North Africa, or in the Middle East, or wherever it rears its head, and there's about 60 countries that there's Islamic extremism, the real question is, how are you going to counter that? Because that's what's the great danger for minorities and for democracy and for human rights. And there's two perspectives that have emerged. One says that Islamic extremism can be and should be countered. We have to hope and pray that those voices within the Islamic world who consider Islamic extremism to be unfaithful to the best that they understand Islam to be. We have to hope and pray and work for them to uh, gain the audience and the ear of the young who are sometimes mm -hmm. impacted by the propaganda of the Islamic extremists. There needs to be major curriculum reform in places like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Afghanistan. That sort of thing is what many Muslims want to see. But until that happens, you're going to have the roots of extremism right there in the midst of the educational system, which makes it fertile ground for the Islamic terrorists to gain converts. One of the things I heard recently at an event here in D.C., there was, uh, it was about the Muslim Brotherhood and Qatar and how there's you know, radical extremism and so forth. And one of the uh, panelists talked about how there was so many different kinds of Islamists where they're universalists, but they also, it's hard for them to actually coordinate with each other. And so it sounds to me like if Islam is the problem, then Islam in itself would have to exterminate all the other types of Islam. And I think that's something that you kind of touched upon earlier, where if there isn't some type of pluralism or religious tolerance, even within Islam, in the same way that there's huge varieties of Christianity, like it would be very difficult for them to become universalist. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's not a, just a question of the relationship of Muslims to non-Muslims. It's a question about the of how Muslims treat those who they consider uh, to be heretics or to be those who are out of step with their understanding of Islam. 
And um, I think there's some reason for hope here. Uh, Prince Ghazi, who is a cousin of the current uh, King Abdullah of Jordan, has been a leader in a lot of the anti-extremist uh, gatherings of Muslims. And uh, he's written a book recently on a thinking, some a sort of thinking person's guide to Islam or something like that. And he talks about gatherings that actually brought Sunni and Shia together to affirm certain common understandings of Islam. So you don't have to, uh, it doesn't have to be only Sunni win or only Shia win. Well, that's not unlike some of the developments within Christianity. There were times when Protestants and Catholics were at each other's throats, where they uh, killed each other, where they, where they burned each other at the stake. And over time, they learned to live together. They learned to find things they could affirm together. And the relationship now is radically different than even 50 years ago, let alone uh, 300 or 400 years ago. If you look even at the history of Christianity and the growth of the ability to live with those who might consider wrong, but we don't, we don't kill them, we recognize they have certain civil rights, they have certain religious freedom rights, etc., so I think using the West and its growth and understanding of religious freedom, I mean, it wasn't so long ago, four or five hundred years ago, that uh, the West was beheading people as well for religious and political reasons. They were certainly torturing people, they were torturing each other. So there is reason to believe that religious groups who do that sort of thing can grow out of it, can reject that. Many Muslims clearly want to move in the direction of tolerance. It doesn't mean they don't believe there's something as such as truth. It doesn't mean they don't think Muhammad was the prophet. But they don't believe that it requires that they therefore exterminate or not live in peace with those who differ with them, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim. Well, Dr. Hill, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us about your article. And again, thank you for speaking at the lecture last fall, and thank you for your article. On the podcast page, we will have a link to the article so that those who are interested can go and read it, because it gives a lot more detail than what we can cover in a podcast. And uh, yes, thank you so much. It was an honor to be with you. Wish you well. Thank you.